3: I'm Brianna Seely, producer for OffScript Health. Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare. Before we get started today, I'd like to tell our listeners about another show in the OffScript Health Podcast Network, Dabble Co. Dabble Co's mission is to empower women with accurate information provided by actual experts. In each episode, host Claire O'Brien, nurse practitioner and co-founder of The Skin Click, breaks down trending topics in health, wellness, and beauty to challenge what's trending. Versus what's true. Check out the three-part Roe v. Wade series featuring an OBGYN, pastor, and mother's thoughts on the highly debated topic. For more information, visit offscript.com shows. The link will be in our show notes. Hi. We're working on some great news stories for you all. But today, we wanted to revisit an episode featuring emergency room physician, Dr. Megan Ranny, as her words feel more important than ever. There have already been over 250 mass shootings in 2022, including the attack on Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. In this episode, Dr. Megan Ranney explains how gun violence is a public health crisis and what we can do to help end it. We'll be back with more new content soon. Enjoy the show.
2: 2021 could be on pace to be America's deadliest year of gun violence in the last two decades. The events of the past two weeks, you know, 10 people killed in Boulder, Colorado. A week ago, unfortunately, another eight people killed in Atlanta. And just 10 days ago,
1: at Park Manor, 15 people shot, two people killed at a pop-up party. Those get the national attention. Those get news coverage. But unfortunately,
2: every day in America, over 110 people get killed from gun violence, either by suicide or homicide. Most people think of gun violence as a criminal justice issue, but it is a health care issue. Gun violence is a leading cause of premature death in the U.S., In 2020, there were more than 44,000 gun deaths. More than half of them were suicides, while firearm homicides increased by almost 20%. And the number of injuries is far higher, at least 130,000 per year. These injuries and deaths are disproportionately young people and disproportionately male. However, we know that a woman is five times more likely to be murdered when her abuser has access to a gun. And over half of all women killed in the US are killed by a current or former intimate partner. So, this is a women's health issue as well. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Megan Raney, a respected researcher, emergency physician, and advocate in the field of injury prevention and digital health. She is an associate professor at Brown University and the co founder of a firm, the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. Dr. Rani, welcome to the show. I want to start with the whole stay in your lane debacle, which garnered a lot of attention. What happened there? So I'll take us back
0: to November of 2018, when the American College of Physicians published in a position paper talking about the public health approach to firearm injury. The paper had a whole lot of suggestions and evidence-based statements in it. Some of those were policy related, many were not, but the NRA got a hold of it and sent off this tweet saying that doctors should stay in their lane and not talk about firearm injury.
2: This tweet from the National Rifle Association said, quote, someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Half of the articles in Annals of Internal Medicine are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. We,
0: by that point within the medical community, had a whole group of physicians and other healthcare professionals who had been talking about firearm injury as a public health
2: problem for a few years already.
0: And when the NRA tweet came out, we very quickly responded.
2: Doctors across the United States are trending on Twitter under the hashtag, this is our lane, in response to the NRA. One med
0: Twitter user coined the hashtag, this is our lane, and really overnight, it went viral. Physicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers started sharing stories about how firearm injury is very much our lane in healthcare, how we are the ones to treat the victims of gunshot wounds, and were also the ones who take care of survivors and their families and their communities. A trauma surgeon from New Jersey tweeted this photo,
2: writing, Hey NRA, wanna see my lane? Here's the chair I sit in when I tell parents their kids are dead.
0: It engendered hundreds of thousands of tweets, a fair amount of media attention. And then just a week or so later, Uh, One of our own was shot and killed um, by her ex fiance a woman named Dr. Tamara O'Neill, a fellow emergency physician. She was walking out of her shift at Mercy Hospital in Chicago, um, and her ex came up and shot and killed her, and then killed a police officer and a pharmacist as well. And this is our lane turned very personal um, for many of us. And a whole lot of new stories came out about the ways in which we ourselves have been touched by gun violence. It was a tremendous outpouring of support um, and really, I think, resulted in a start of a shift in the way that the American public thinks about firearm injury as not just a criminal justice or a legislative problem, but at its core as a
2: health problem. The AMA has called gun violence a public health crisis, yet, you know, your work doesn't focus on the legislative piece of it, doesn't focus on gun control or criminalization. Tell me about that nonpartisan approach you're taking at Affirm.
0: So Affirm, or the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine, is a nonprofit that I and another physician co-founded almost four years ago now to try to take this nonpartisan public health approach to firearm injury. At that point, there was virtually no federal funding for firearm injury prevention research. There were virtually no guidelines for physicians or other healthcare professionals on how to identify who was at risk of firearm injury, on what to do about it. Imagine if I told you that for heart disease, we didn't know how to identify who was at risk or how to prevent it. Well, that's where we were with firearm injury. And so we came together and created a firm with the idea that this wasn't about gun owners versus non-gun owners. This wasn't about gun control or gun rights. It was about centering the problem in the health of patients and communities. And over the last few years, we've worked with a huge group of people from across the country, um, both leaders and ground floor practitioners, uh, to try to define what that public health approach is. Now, policy can be part of the public health solution, but it is never sufficient, and sometimes it causes harm. So the public health approach is so much wider than just policy. It is about getting accurate counts of who's getting injured, figuring out who's at risk and what we can do about it, making sure that we're doing things that actually work. And it's about taking a harm reduction approach, You know, the same approach that we've taken to car crash injuries or to drownings, where we're not telling everybody to dig up their pool in their backyard or throw away the keys to their car. Instead, we're saying, hey, if you need to put a fence around your pool to keep little kids from unintentionally drowning or, hey, don't drive drunk. And if you know that a friend of yours is drunk, take the keys away from them for a little bit. It's that kind of approach that is key to public health. And that is how we have successfully decreased numbers of injuries caused by so many things uh, across our country. It's time to apply the same approach to guns.
2: So using that public health framework to look at firearm injuries, what are the social risk and protective factors for gun violence and death? Kelly, it's a great question. And I will
0: start by saying we are so limited in what we know. Um, Thanks to this thing called the Dickey Amendment that was passed in 1996, um, there's been virtually no federal funding for this type of work. Um, from 1996 up until 2020 when Congress finally appropriated 25 million dollars to the NIH and CDC. So I'll start with that caveat,
2: which isn't a lot <laughs> which is it's not a lot in the world of research. No, that's exactly yeah. right
0: to, to me or you 25 million dollars sounds like a lot. but yeah. in research that's that's not a lot. When you look at the 1.5 billion that was dedicated to uh, coronavirus research just over a few months um, last spring, the 25 million pales in comparison. Yeah, compared um, to the lives taken, certainly. That's exactly it. If you compare it to other diseases or injuries that kill similar numbers of people, we're getting virtually nothing. But so that said, what we do know about risk factors, we know that things like substance use, a history of domestic violence, heavy drinking, being an adolescent, those are all things that put people at higher risk. Mm. But there are also things like being a widowed man being lonely um, that appear to put people at higher risk. And part of that is that two-thirds of the gun deaths in this country are suicides. And so many of the risk factors for firearm injury are also risk factors, not just for homicide, but also suicide. There's some increasing evidence that cognitive decline or Alzheimer's may serve as a risk factor for being a victim of firearm injury or death because of suicide. And... There's a lot of work going on right now, looking at the impact of fear versus hope and to what degree those influence our risk. One thing that's important to say that's not really a clear risk factor is mental illness. Sure, being depressed um, or suicidal is obviously a risk factor for hurting yourself with a gun. But in general, um, mental illness is not a significant risk factor for mass shootings or for homicide. Instead, it's things like domestic violence that put someone at, at higher risk of, of perpetrating a crime or shooting someone else.
2: But that's not how what the media would lead you to believe. No, not at all. <laughs> for gun violence due to domestic abuse, um, we know that a woman has a five times greater chance of being murdered when her abuser has access to a gun. We know the boyfriend loophole kind of makes it more difficult to keep guns away from people who might be violent. What do you think about policies to further protect women from homicide by gun from an intimate partner?
0: Yeah. So this is a place that policy can make a huge difference is in this area of domestic violence. But I'm going to make the point that we don't need just the policies or the legislation. We also need enforcement. And we also need culture change and destigmatization of the issue. So there are states, including my own, where that boyfriend loophole has been closed, but nonetheless, judges don't mandate that uh, folks that are convicted of domestic violence lose access to firearms. There are also places where offenders can go and purchase firearms um, outside of the regular system, and so they can avoid those background checks that might flag them um, as having an exclusionary criterion. And then, of course, there's the fear um, that folks that are victims of domestic violence live under. Uh, We know that the moment of leaving is the moment of highest risk. And that's when it's most important um, to make sure that a woman or a man, because there is same-sex violence as well, is safe. But that's often before they've gotten a conviction. And so being able to have The whole support system around a domestic violence system, aware of this risk factor and creative about ways to protect the victim is important as well.
2: Yeah. Well, we know that isolation is a tactic from abusers. So if you've over the years isolated yourself, lost touch with family and friends, and it's that moment to leave, you might not be able to, Um, or you might end up on the streets. You might not have a place to go if you're trying to leave.
0: That's exactly right. It is a you know perfect storm of tough factors, um, and that's where again for us to address this problem as a public health epidemic, it's not as simple as saying oh just you know do X and it will all be magically solved. It requires a series of solutions put in place. But again, that's not unique to firearms. The same thing is true for car crashes um, or the analogy I used before of heart disease. Right? Yes, you should stop smoking you should also probably cut down on your intake of butter and you should probably work out and maybe you might need to take a statin, right? And same thing is true for firearms where laws like stricter domestic violence restraining orders and stricter standards around who with a domestic violence conviction can or can't buy a firearm, those are critical. But those are only a part of the solution. We also have to enable victims to be able to recognize what's going on to have ways to get out, to achieve financial security, um, to create a support system, and to safely get those guns out of the house temporarily.
2: We'll be right back after the break.
1: Patrick Healing and April Quinn both live in Culpeper County. Patrick was the first to petition his commissioners to defy any new gun control laws. If they can take our rights, they can take your rights. This is about the idea of America. And if we lose this, we lose that.
2: So you've called gun violence a uniquely American epidemic. What exactly do you mean by that?
0: We are number one. (laughs) among high-income countries in terms of gun deaths per capita. And I think a lot of it is related to our national mythology around guns. You know, we obviously have the Second Amendment. It's part of our constitution. It is baked into who we are as a country. And we have this story of cowboys and the Wild West and gunslingers and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ronald Reagan, right? That's also part of who we are. Yeah. And so we not only have it a unique part of our founding story, but it's part of who we imagine ourselves to be. We're individualistic. We protect ourselves and our family. We're, you know, Ingalls out on the frontier and that makes it tough because gun culture is a uniquely American phenomenon but there are ways to have a gun culture that is safe and that recognizes the fact that a gun can be used for harm as well as being used as a tool. It's, Hallie, where I'm really excited to get to work with a number of firearm experts, firearm safety organizations to try to reframe this issue, to make it not us versus them, to respect the heritage and privilege that's involved with owning a gun in this country, and to work together to kind of redefine what safety looks like.
2: I admire your approach. I think you've really taken this approach of, let's just view this as a public health problem. We're not taking your guns. We're just trying to make people safer.
0: Well, and I think part of that is, so first of all, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, So, you know, firearms are part of the, you know, Western New York is basically the Midwest (laughs) Um, and, you know, family members that are in the Secret Service and the military and hunt. And so, you know, firearms are not this foreign object to me. I think also it's recognizing that as is so often true there are the extremes. There are folks, you know, who go on TV and say, you know, you'll take this gun out of my bare dead hands, but that's not most firearm owners. You know, a, a decent percentage depending on what survey you look at somewhere between 30 and 40% of physicians just like somewhere between 30 and 40% of Americans have a firearm. It's not something that makes someone bad or crazy or stupid. It's just, again, a tool, a way of life. And I think that when we can change that conversation, when we can separate out the extremism from the everyday, again, that gives us space for progress together. Yeah. So do you own a gun? So I don't personally own a gun. And (laughs) that's a choice for a few different
2: reasons. Um, But I have a lot of friends that do. Yeah. Well, I'm also from the Midwest and have family members who are gun owners for hunting as well. And so I personally heard kind of arguments on both sides around how much gun control makes sense. But I think really focusing the conversation on healthcare. I'm curious, you stay out of that gun rights conversation and gun control debate. Do you still deal with trolls and and threats online just because you're talking about guns? Yeah, I do. But it's funny. I've actually gotten more
0: trolls around COVID and masking than I have Ugh. around firearms. <laughs> wow. I, sometimes, I know, right? It's. Uh, I sometimes joke that I cut my teeth on the firearm injury debate and it helped prepare me for what I was stepping into <laughs> with COVID. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they are out there. There's definitely folks when I post um, on Twitter or elsewhere about firearm injury as a public health problem. Again, people make these assumptions. That when I'm talking about firearm injury as public health, that I somehow mean I'm gonna ban guns. And I think part of the challenge is things like this podcast, taking the space and time to deepen the conversation a little. Yeah. You know, create a little bit of nuance and to share real stories. I'll say that's where my co founder of a firm, a guy named Chris Barsati, fellow emergency physician, firearm owner, rifle safety instructor for 4 H. He's really gone the extra mile. He's not on social media, but he has this incredible commitment to bringing together folks to share real stories based on the awareness that, right, these sound bites don't allow us to go deeper. The sound bites create the perfect medium for trolling to arise. But when we get together face to face and talk about our lived experiences, it creates a different space for reframing the issue.
2: Well, I know, um, you know, it's hard to be in the spotlight period, even harder as a woman, um, on, on Twitter and sharing thoughts that can be misinterpreted or just having people disagree. I'm curious, have you had moments where you've wanted to give up and quit social media and just focus on your patients or a, a, any any moment like that that you can share?
0: Yeah, I certainly have had moments where my husband wished that I would give up on social media. <laughs> I you know I'm fuming <laughs> over something over the dinner table, but in general, I love social media and the ability that it creates for us to engage with folks who we might not otherwise get to interact with. And I feel like as long as I come to social media with my basic principles of honesty and respect and humility, and trying my darndest to always be truthful a willingness to admit when I make mistakes, then the trolls can't really hurt me. Sure, I've gotten some weird emails and letters and some envelopes that I opened very carefully, you know, or oh, packages. Boy. But but wow. um That's scary though. That's yeah. at your to your home or to your work your work. Both. Place. Both. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I feel like Helly, if if we're not there, then 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 the extremists, the, the folks on the fringes have won. So it's worth it.
2: Yeah. So what's next for you and Affirm in 2021 and beyond?
0: Well, we have some really exciting stuff going on at Affirm. Um, We're working, we've done a series of reframe events, those community-based storytelling events that Chris Barsati started. And we're working with the American Board of Internal Medicine that has a building trust initiative to kind of formalize the playbook for those events so that we can do them more easily across the country. A firm is also working with me at Brown in doing uh, some work funded by the CDC to work with 4 H to launch firearm injury prevention work with 4 H clubs across the country. And there's a few more things coming too that I actually can't talk about <laughs> quite yet. But um, check back with me in a few weeks, and yeah. we'll we'll be able to share hopefully some more exciting news. But really, yeah. the the big thing is about keeping on going with trying to spread this message that it's a health problem that we can all work together. Spaces like this are, are spaces that really help to make a difference.
2: I I found the video on the affirm um, homepage really valuable. You did a good job narrating it, um, kind of walking through the issue. Thank you. That means a lot. (laughs) So everybody listening, you can go to, is it affirm.org? Affirm, A-F-F-I-R-M, research.org. And what are the best way for people
0: to support your work? So the first one is to just know the facts about firearm injury. Things like Two thirds of firearm deaths are suicides. This is not an us versus them issue, um, and there's more on our website. The second is to share your stories to destigmatize talking about firearm injury, and the third, of course, we always welcome donations. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how the world goes round and how the work gets done. Um, yeah. and we we take every donation seriously and use it well, um, and again, use it not for advocacy but to do the work.
2: Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation and we're looking forward to supporting a firm and everything that you're working on. Thank you, Hallie. It's a delight to chat with you.
3: Thank you for listening to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. If you liked today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare with Hallie Tecco is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Holly Tecco and Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seely and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seely. Our music is by Utah. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Dot com. That's Offscript, no t, dot com.